Hey, good morning, everyone. Happy, happy Father's Day. My name, is, uh, my name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm a father to two, Emily, uh, who turned 16 about three weeks ago. And yeah, and uh, Levi, who's 11, and uh, they're great. And I'm anticipating getting to celebrate Father's Day. Uh, for me, in my house, that at least this year, it's going to be all about like letting me watch the World Cup, uh, hopefully in, in peace. Uh, I am pretty much, uh, I think it was said this morning, if you want to know anything about the World Cup at this point, I'm probably the guy to ask. Uh, at least I've, I've caught most of the matches at this point. Anyway, um, happy Father's Day. I'm glad to be here with you today. I want to just kind of give a couple words about, about my father and maybe tell you guys a little bit more about who I am in relation to my father. Um, I actually want to start with his father. My, uh, my dad's dad, my, my, my paternal grandfather, his name's uh, James. His name was James Franklin Case, James F. Case. And um, he um, came from Greenville, South Carolina to Western Pennsylvania at the height of the Great Depression. Moved up north uh, for work, as a lot of people did during that time, and arrived in this tiny little town in Western Pennsylvania called Franklin and arrived, in, arrived with like $6 to his name and promptly spent half of it on a bottle of whiskey to celebrate the arrival uh, in Pennsylvania. I uh, ended up working for uh, the WPA for years uh, during the Great Depression and then went to work at a steel mill because Western Pennsylvania, Western Pennsylvania is steel country, part of the Rust Belt, and worked for the steel mill for 30 years, retired from there, uh, worked most of the time shift work, so my dad did not see a lot of, uh, lot of his father. Uh, my dad was the oldest of four boys, so his name is Clyde Ellsworth Case, and uh, incidentally, he, he demanded that we not name any of our children after him. He was like, I'm, you may not inflict any of your children with my names uh, in the 21st century. So he was the oldest of, of four boys and grew up in Pennsylvania and was a Marine or wait, well, I'm sorry, once a Marine, right? Always a Marine. So um, went into the Marine Corps and then came back. And uh, I should have mentioned my, my grandfather had an eighth grade education. That's as far as he got. And still would kick my butt in, in Scrabble all the time. That was like the family game. And every time he would win, he would just look at me and shake his head and go, that's an eighth grade education, boy. <laughs> and I was just like so humiliated. Um, my father uh, went to what would probably be the equivalent of an associate's degree. So came back from the Marine Corps, went to what they call business school at the time, and also went to work for the steel mill. And he did 26 years with the steel mill. Um, part of that in the mill, doing hard, hot labor, and then actually got out of the mill and went into sales. And then we moved to Texas. And, and the thing, one of the things about my dad that I can always remember him saying to me, and I think it's what a lot of dads say to, to kids and, and parents for that matter. He's like, he's like you, can, you can do whatever you want to do. You know, and I come from the generation where there was always this sense of like, you're going to go a little bit farther than your parents. So my grandfather, eighth grade education, my father made it through high school, associate's degree, and then my dad was determined, you know, that me and my sister were going to go a little bit farther and so education was a really big deal in my family. And they're like, you are going to college, and we're going to put you through college. After that, you're on your own. Don't ask for help. Um, but he was determined that we were going to go a little bit farther. 
and do a little bit more if, if possible. And one of the things he always used to tell me, Eric, you can do whatever, whatever you wanna do. Whatever you wanna do, you can do. Now I found out as I got older, he didn't really mean that, but um, for the most part, he did. And as you probably could figure out, one of the things that I wanted to do was to play these things, right? To mess around with these. So when I was 15, you guys maybe have heard me tell the story. 15, I got bitten by the rock and roll music bug bad. And, and uh, I devoted years and hours of my life to playing mastering music, soaking music in, uh, living it. And that was the thing that when dad said, you can do whatever you want to do, I was like, well, I'm going to do this. And that's when I kind of found out that maybe he didn't really mean that because he was like, really, this is what you're going to do? Um, And we uh, obviously, you know, had our differences about how music would play out in in, uh, my life. But that's one of the gifts that my dad gave me the idea of going a little bit farther than what he did and, and being able to do whatever it is I wanted to do. And obviously, uh, even as I get to do different things at E3 now, like teach and, and do different leadership activities, music is still a great part of my life. And I still seek out opportunities to learn about it and to just sit at the feet of art and music. And, and this week, I, got, I was privileged to watch a couple documentaries that I just want to share with, with you guys uh, real briefly. The first was a documentary that has been recommended to me by a few different people in the community, and it's called 20 Feet from Stardom. And I actually have the trailer that I want to show you guys. Now, before I show you the trailer, I want to mention also that in case you didn't know and you're a parent, uh, these gatherings, these Sunday morning corporate gatherings, are officially rated PG-13, okay? If you didn't know, we have a rating system, and Pastor Mark will tell you this. And I only say this because in this trailer, there is actually a reference to the word sex. And I just want you guys to know that if you're a parent, there is a reference to a concept called sex. It's coming up in the trailer, but just watch this.
That's a great, a great documentary. Highly recommended. If you like music at all, the thing is about these women, and there's about five or six of them, they have sung on uh, virtually every hit record from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. Like you will be amazed at, at what they've done. And it's such a beautiful story of women who uh, love, their, love music. They love the gift that they've been given. I also watched another documentary this week uh, called Mistaken for Strangers. And I don't have a trailer for that because I couldn't. Uh, it was beyond PG-13 probably. So uh, it's about this band called The National. And, and uh, the lead singer has a little brother. Matt and Tom Berninger are their names. And uh, it's, it's essentially the story of this brother who's super successful in this really critically acclaimed rock band that is being very successful. And his little brother goes on tour with him and, and makes this documentary. And it's just this beautiful story of the tension between a very successful brother and a not so successful brother. And that's a picture of them. Uh, he's in the crowd singing and that's his little brother right beside him. And really just kind of soaked that in and fed my soul musically. But this week, we're actually not talking exactly about music. We're talking about a guy named James. And so I want to get into this guy, James, and tell you his story. James is the brother of Jesus. And he's a disciple of Jesus, but he's a disciple that has a very interesting particular story. And, and James' story has been compelling to me for a long time, so much so that like it's been a joke between Pastor Dan and, my, and myself of he's like, I know you're teaching James. Like we don't always know who's teaching week to week, but Dan's like, I know, Eric, you're teaching James. I get it. I get it. So James uh, is the brother of Jesus, and I'm going to start from the middle of his story and then kind of go out. And so some of these scriptures will be on the screen. Some of them won't. James, uh, the middle of his story starts in Acts chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be flipping around in the New Testament a bit today. In chapter 1 of Acts, we, we hear uh, a reference, a very brief reference to James. Jesus has just commissioned his disciples in Jerusalem to go out to the world, to Judea, to tell everybody, to be witnesses of his story. And it says that these are the names who were present. There's a bunch of Jameses in Jesus' posse. Peter, John, James, not this James. Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, not that James. Simon the Zealot and Judas, the son of James, not that James. They all met together and were constantly united in prayer along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and his brothers. So this is the first reference in the book of Acts to James, the brother of Jesus. He's not mentioned by name, but if you flip over a few chapters to chapter 12, you see the next sort of important reference to James. Now, Peter has just been arrested and thrown in prison. And through this miracle, he gets released from prison. And he's hanging out and he tells a guy that's standing there, uh, he says he motioned for them to be quiet, to quiet down and told them how the Lord had led him out of prison. Then he says, tell James and the other brothers what happened. And then he went to another place. Now, we know that this is James, the brother of Jesus, because one of the other disciples has already been executed. And so Peter gets let out from prison and he says, go tell James what's happened. And something kind of significant happens in, in between those two statements. When we're, the first statement is just told that James, the brothers of Jesus, are with the disciples. But now in chapter 12, James' stature has changed enough so that when Peter says, 
hey, something miraculous has happened. Go tell who? James. James has gone from just hanging out to being somebody that Peter wants to know something has happened. And then if you turn a few chapters over again to chapter 15, there's this story of a council in Jerusalem. And it's a council between all the leaders of this movement of, Christ, of Judaism called Christianity right now, because that's what it is. It's a movement of Judaism. And there's this incredible tension arising. You've got people who grew up as Jews, and they grew up with certain laws and regulations about what you would eat and where you would go and what you would do. And these were very important to the Jewish believers. It was Torah. It was the way you responded to God's goodness. God set you free. God has released you. God has forgiven your sin. So you do what he says. You obey his laws. And you don't eat pork. And you don't mess with Gentiles. And you don't go certain places. That's the Jewish believers. But the problem is there's all these believers coming into the movement that don't have that background. They're Gentiles. And they're like, bacon is awesome. Have you ever had it? Seriously. And this matters. Like, we might roll our eyes and think it's funny, but, but obeying God's law was important to the Jews. And all of a sudden, these people are coming in going, ah, it's not that important. This is a big controversy. So people are speaking into this. And all of a sudden, in Acts chapter 15, James stands up, the brother of Jesus, and he says this amazing speech about kind of how we can deal with the Gentiles in a way that honors both sides. And it's a beautiful, reconciling, peacekeeping statement. And so from Acts 1 to Acts 15, you see that James has gone from just hanging out with the disciples to being a person that Peter wants to know something has happened to being a major voice in the Jerusalem council. He's a leader in the Jerusalem church very quickly. Now, this is important, I believe, because of James's backstory. And we're going to flip through some of the Gospels here and just look at where James comes from. The first thing we're going to look at is in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 13, we get a little bit of a glimpse of the biography of Jesus. Jesus has been doing some ministry, and he comes back home to Nazareth. And uh, the people around him are like, wow, this Jesus is amazing. He's been doing all these awesome things. And in Matthew 13, verse 55, you see the reaction of his hometown. They say, they scoffed at him. He's just the carpenter's son. And we know Mary, his mother, and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, Judas. All his sisters live right here among us. Where did he learn all these things? So in that short little sentence, we know a few things about Jesus and James, right? We know, first of all, that Jesus has how many brothers? Four. We also know something else about Jesus and James. They come from a pious Jewish family because these are all pious Jewish names. And in that culture, names meant something. So these are all good Jewish boys being raised in a good Jewish home. So Jesus has four brothers. He also has how many sisters? We don't know, but he has at least two, because it is plural, sisters. So Jesus comes from a family of at least seven children. 
And what else uh, we know, based on some biblical scholarship and church tradition, is that Jesus and James' father dies at a very young age. They don't have a dad. He's not mentioned there. He vanishes from the gospel stories relatively quickly. And so most scholars would say they grew up without a father. And in this culture, growing up without a father is a big deal. Seven children without somebody to help put food on the table. This is not an affluent family that they come from. This is a family on the borderline of poverty, of waiting every day for food. But this is where James and Jesus come from. But there's something, about else, something else about James's story that is really, really important to me. If you go to the next gospel in the New Testament, Mark, and you look at chapter 3, there's another story of Jesus doing ministry right at the beginning of his time of, of doing ministry. He's just called the 12 uh, apostles to him. And then uh, the, the text says this in verse 20, chapter 3. One time Jesus entered a house and the crowds began to gather again. Soon he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. When his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away, saying, he's out of his mind. So when Jesus is doing ministry, his family is not his biggest supporters. They're telling people, don't mind him He's a little crazy. This is Jesus, and this is James. If you flip over to, uh, what we're doing is we're just sketching out the details of James's biography. If you flip over once again to the Gospel of John in chapter 19, we're gonna fast forward. Jesus is now hanging on the cross. He's dying. It's the end of his ministry. And there's this really poignant exchange between Jesus and his mother, and another disciple. So standing near the cross were Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, now most people would say this is John, the, the person who this gospel is named for, beside the disciple that, Je that he loved, he said to her, dear woman, here is your son. And he said to this disciple, here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. And why is this important? Why, the reason it's important is, where's James? He's not there. He's not there. And most scholars would say that James was not a follower of Jesus during his ministry, or he probably would have been at the cross with his mother. But the fact that Jesus looks at John and says, take care of my mother, says that James, who ends up being a leader of the church, is nowhere to be found in Jesus's earthly ministry. If in the gospel resurrection stories, James is not to be found, but in a letter that Paul writes to a church in Corinth, he says that eventually Jesus appears in his resurrected body, to James, names him specifically. Somewhere in there, James gets it. And I imagine it's a pretty catastrophic turnaround. 
Because very quickly, James is hanging out with the apostles in Acts 1. Then we're told that he's important to Peter in Acts 12. And then we're told by Acts 15, he's a leader in the church. And he stays that way. A leader in the church of Jerusalem. And this is the first church. This is the mother church. This is the church that all churches, including this one, come from. Jerusalem. The first gathering of believers in Jesus is in Jerusalem. And James is its leader. Now around 40 to 50 so or so, James writes a letter. And the letter is in the Bible. Uh, it's after the, the, the book of Hebrews. And I'm just gonna tell you really quickly about the letter. The letter is, has been controversial. Some say it didn't even belong in the Bible. The letter is thoroughly Jewish, but let's face it, James was thoroughly Jewish, so was Jesus. The letter is concerned with following Torah, but so was Jesus. If you read Matthew 5 and 6, he was concerned with following Torah, so is James. The letter is also was, was concerned with taking care of widows and orphans because that's what his brother was concerned with as well. And if I could summarize the letter in three points, and I just kind of took this from another scholar, the basic point of James is threefold. One, do good things. Two, watch your mouth. And three, live out the gospel, especially with your wallet, especially in acts of compassion and mercy. James, the letter is, is actually really, really challenging for me. We went through it in, in my growth group about a year and a half ago. And uh, I kind of didn't like the letter because I'm the type of guy who likes to dig into the, the meaning of the language. And, oh, there's a nuance of the Greek here. And James is, James is, there are no nuances to James. James is like, watch your mouth. And I'm like, what's the Greek say? Oh, it says, watch your mouth. James is practical, and he just tells you like it is. Uh, James, eventually, uh, as he's the leader of the church, he remains so respected by the Jewish leaders that he's afforded a luxury that no other, at least that I've been able to find, no other Christian leader is allowed, and that is he's allowed to continue to come to the temple. So they're like, James, I don't know about this Jesus guy, but James, you are so faithful and your life is, it speaks so loudly that you may continue to come to the temple. And the legends are that he would be in the temple hours upon hours praying, 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 praying for his church, praying for his people. He ends up with a, a great nickname. Uh, most of these guys have multiple nicknames. He's known as James the Just. He's also known uh, in, that, in, in sort of that circle of Jerusalem as the rampart of righteousness. In other words, the fortress of righteousness and faithfulness. Isn't that a cool nickname? I just like to be known as the fortress of faithfulness. That's James. And he's so respected by the Jewish leaders that he's allowed to come to the temple. But eventually that changes because the tensions between the Christians and the Jews are, are rising and rising and rising. And eventually around uh, AD 62, James is executed. He's stoned, he's, uh, he's murdered, uh, whatever word you wanna use. And that's James's life. James's life has always spoken very powerfully to me and, and I'm, I, I'm going to read into his story a little bit and you'll just have to give me a little bit of grace on this. Acts 15, when James stands up and he speaks and he makes this wonderful reconciling, peacekeeping statement, in a way, that represents the peak of James's life 
at least as Scripture tells it. Because something happens after Acts 15, and that is this. He disappears from the story. In the book of Acts, after Acts 15, uh, the book becomes increasingly about Peter and Paul and then just about Paul. And all other disciples, including the leader of the first church, James, the brother of Jesus, they fade into the background. So much so that a lot of us may not even read the book of James, but we probably read a lot of Paul's letters, if you read the Bible. You probably know Paul's letters. You might not know James's letters so much. And Acts 15 represents the apex of his ministry in his life, at least as Scripture tells it. There's one other reference to, to James. I mean, there's a few other references in, in Paul's writings, but there's one more that's really important for what we're talking about here today. In Romans, at the end of uh, Paul's letter to the church at Rome, he makes a reference that says, hey, I'm sending a collection back to the church at Jerusalem. And this is important because the church at Jerusalem, in the time that Paul leaves and goes out and does all these amazing rock star things, the church of Jerusalem begins to suffer. It suffers opposition and oppression because it's in Jerusalem and the leaders are opposed to this movement. It also suffers uh, an, an amazing um, famine. And the church, by the time Paul's writing to Rome, is poor and struggling. The first church the mother church of us all, led by James, the fortress of faithfulness, the brother of Jesus is suffering. And most of the time you think if you had those credentials, if you were the brother of Jesus and you were called the fortress of faithfulness and righteousness, wouldn't you think your church would kind of be on this tack or I guess maybe this tack from this angle? Wouldn't you think that? But in James's story, the church goes like this. And all the time, he's watching Paul and Peter. And Paul's writing these stories about, I just started this new church. I started this new church in Corinth. I started this new church here and this new church here. And God's doing amazing things. And all of a sudden, Peter, and James is sitting back in Jerusalem going, my people are starving. And we're not going to make budget. And the Jewish leaders are opposing everything we do. And I'm the brother of Jesus, and they call me the fortress of faithfulness. So here's what I want to do. Because the, the, the most mind-blowing thing to me is that James stayed. He didn't run out and start running around the Mediterranean like Peter and Paul. With this suffering church, James stayed put, and he saw it to the end of his race that ended with him being executed. So, there's a different rhythm to our, our talks a little bit because I just want to tell you right now what the disciple of Jesus, what James's portrait says to me. That a disciple of Jesus serves in humble faithfulness. That you stay. Even when times are tough. Even when somebody else is running around doing all the rock star things. You stay and you serve in humble faithfulness. 
But here's where I want to go a little bit further. Because if you're like me, and I hope some of you are like me, this don't mix too well with this. Humble faithfulness is not two words, are not two words that I would use to describe myself most of the time. And yet, I have had to live James's life, and maybe you have as well. Let me ask you this. Have you ever felt passed over? Have you ever felt left behind in obscurity? Have you ever felt like you're sitting here living this cubicle life and by Facebook updates or just news on the street, oh my gosh, everybody's doing these amazing things and I have to fill out my TPS reports in triplicate by four o'clock every day. Has anybody ever had that life? I have. And when I have those moments, humble faithfulness is not usually my go-to reaction. It's more like arrogant cynicism. Why can't that be me? I'm just as talented I'm the brother of Jesus. I'm not me. I'm James is the brother of Jesus. James is the fortress of why can't I be doing these things? So how, how, how do we live this out? Now, let me just circle back. You know, I said my dad used to tell me you could do whatever you wanted to, right? Whatever you wanted to. And obviously I wanted to do this. And in the beginning of that trailer, Bruce Springsteen is talking about the walk. From the, from, the, from the drums to the front of the stage. And what he's referring to is this walk that looks like this, where the backup singers or the backup musicians stand and the lights are low and you're low lit and you're in obscurity. What Bruce Springsteen says is that the walk up here to the front of the stage where he stands, where everybody shouts his name, Bruce, it's a complicated walk. Let me tell you, let me be honest. When my father said you could do whatever you wanted to do, this is what I wanted. I wanted it all. I wanted limousines. I wanted big houses. I wanted people singing my songs. I got to do some pretty cool things, but most of the time, my life's been lived back here. And this is not an easy place to be if you have any type of ego or if you're prone to arrogance or pride. But for most of us, this is more of our reality necessarily than up there. And I think if we're honest also, we would say we all kind of want some part of this life. We all want to go out and do stuff. We all want to feel like what we do matters. But how do you navigate that? How do you navigate sitting in the cube eight hours a day when you wish you could be doing something else? How do you navigate standing at that position when you wish you were at this position? Well, in uh, the other documentary I watched this week, uh, Mistaken for Strangers, I said it's about these two brothers. And one brother's a rock star. And the other brother is this kind of screw-up filmmaker. And I'm not gonna give too much of the film away. It's a brilliant film. You should watch it. And at the end of the movie, there's this exchange between the two. And the little brother flat out says, it's hard 
being his little brother because he's a rock star. And it makes me feel like nothing I do matters. And then there's this other footage of the older brother of, of Matt Berninger, the singer of the National. And he's speaking to his brother who's holding the camera. And I actually want to read the words uh, to you that he says to his brother. Because I think what he says to his brothers tells us how you serve in humble faithfulness. He looks at the camera, and I, I'm a softy. I'm going to tell you I started crying when he said this. He said, Tom, you focus on the wrong stuff. It's true. You're terrible at a lot of things. <laughs> Big brothers, right? But there are a couple things that nobody else does as well as you. And it drives me bananas, he says, that you will throw yourself away completely because of one or two things that you think are wrong about you. The older brother says, that breaks my heart. And you have to ignore that and lean towards the things you like about yourself. And in that little statement, I want to suggest are three ways that you live out humble faithfulness. The first is what I would call uh, being right-sized. Another way to say that is, is to be embrace humility. That's a tricky concept because most of us think humility is all about saying how awful we are. Oh, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm never going to be the counselor and the listener that Dan Meyer is. I'm never going to be the visionary that Mark McNeese is. I'm never going to be the master administrator that my wife is. I'm not. I'm terrible at those things. But there are a few things that I do pretty well. Humility is not about saying how awful you are. It's simply being right-sized. One of my spiritual mentors keeps saying this to me, Eric, you're a good man who makes really bad mistakes sometimes. And that's the truth of all of us. The scriptures say that God made us a little lower than the angels. Don't get me wrong, that little lower, that's a pretty significant thing. But there's beauty in all of us. We're all amazing, good people who make mistakes. We're never going to be able to be perfect. But right-sizing ourselves is a great place start. The second thing that Matt Berninger refers to is this idea of give what you got. Yes, you're terrible at a lot of things, but here's some things that you do really well. And to serve in humble faithfulness, you need to know what these things are and you need to give them. Give them to the community. Give them to your job. Give them to each other. And E3 wants to help you in this. And this is a shameless plug for this thing we have called Demonstrate. If you don't know what your gifts are, if you don't know what your passions are, we are here to help you with that. Here's what I heard somebody say once about spiritual gifts or giftedness in general. Nobody has them all and nobody has none of them. How many people have taken Demonstrate in this room? It should be double that. And I think there's a sign-up sheet. If not, Get on Pastor Dan's radar. We will help you find out what the things that you do that are better than anybody else. 
Do them. And then the last thing is as you do them, you need to know your why. Why? Because you can do these things with the entire motivation of getting from this point to this point. That can be your why. I just want to be a rock star. I just want to get from obscurity to prominence. That is not a good why. And one of the most beautiful statements that the, one of the ladies made uh, in that documentary is they said, you know, most of them, they tried to get up there. And one of them even said, I just thought that if I gave my heart to this completely, that I would get up there. But life doesn't always work that way. But what most of them woke up to the fact is that they said, you know what? When I just embrace the fact that I love to sing and that's my gift, everything changed. And they experienced more peace and they experienced humble faithfulness. And I'd like to suggest to you that James woke up to the fact that all he wanted to do was pastor a church, whether it was successful or failing. James knew his why. And he knew what he brought to the table. And the why is simply this, that God sees what we do and it matters. We can't just be nice to each other and use our spiritual gifts on Sunday when we're all in church together and we have our happy smiley faces on. But when you're in cubicle land from eight to five and there's that employee that plays his music too loud or that keeps taking your lunch out of the refrigerator... Your why matters there too. You love and you give. And I want to leave you with this last thought. And because I think a lot of us get wrapped up in the things that the, in thinking that the only things that matter are the rock star things. We get, we get to thinking that the only thing that matters was what Peter and Paul did in the last part of Acts. That's not true. God, does not, God is not just a fan of the rock stars. He's not the God of the center mic. He's the God of the backup singers as well. And he's the God of the people who never even make it on the stage. And if he wasn't, it wouldn't matter, but it does. And I stumbled across this quote about six months ago. I've shared it with the staff a couple times. Uh, it's by this uh, French uh, monk named Tylard de Chardon. Forgive my French, literally. And he says essentially this, that the wisdom and, and value of things is not so much to do the conspicuous things, but to do the ordinary things with a perception of their enormous value. And I want to suggest to you that when you are here, shadowed by the lights, where no one can see you, and you do ordinary things with the awareness of how much they ma matter, the value is even bigger than if a person who is doing conspicuous things has no sense of why they're doing what they're doing. God takes those things and transforms them into beautiful, beautiful things. So, the band's gonna come up and we're gonna play one last song. And as...
we play this song, I wanna ask you some questions. Where are you with humble faithfulness? How do you do with that? Is your goal in life to be a rock star? Or is your goal in life to do ordinary things with an awareness of their eternal, enormous value? Could you navigate a life where your life seems to flatline or maybe even appear to go down a little bit while everybody else is doing apparently amazing things? Could you stay like James stayed? And could you be faithful in that? It's fine. 